share with the team in the first service how incredibly grateful we are for them. Uh, Gary Schmitz has talked to us and some of his teaching for us has talked about in the world there are these thin places where the distance between here and heaven just seems so much more thin. Not that God isn't here with us all of the time and present with us, but there's a sense that the kingdom of God, the, what is true on heaven, seems closer to us here on earth. And this team has just been incredible help to us this morning in reminding us of that reality. It's what we prayed for this morning even before we sang, began worship. So thank you, team, for uh, leading us in this worship now. As we... Um, move forward, I would want to pray with you, but before we do that, um, I just want to just say something more about that song we just sang. I think I'm going to add that to my playlist. I really like that one. I look for it on the radio, and that's probably a great idea too, but it will never be the same, quite the same as it is in this room with all of you. <laughs> There's something about us singing, He is worthy of it all together, isn't it? When our young people are leading us, and they're saying it with their youthful energy and their hopefulness and then walk down the hall and there's Jack Sladke making his way into the church service after the first service and loving his wife uh, years and years of struggling with Alzheimer's and just continuing to relentlessly be faithful to his wife and then we get to come in here and sing he's worthy of it all and it just adds a dimension to it Naomi Jacobson comes in uh, with uh, time with Gerald and uh, worshiping with us and as he's going through the end stages of ALS to be here and say he is worthy of it all. You know, you don't get that when you listen to a song on a playlist. And you get that because it's a part of a dimension of a space like this where it just seems like the distance between here and the kingdom of God is so thin because of what God is doing in our lives together. So we're going to spend some time now in God's word and ask God that it would be another one of those times where we just feel his presence and sense a picture of what it means for the kingdom of God to be in this place and for us to hear from him. So would you pray with me as we begin? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is so good. For the things you did this past week through Vacation Bible School and the volunteers that were part of that and the encouragement and the excitement and uh, the joy in, the, in this place. And Lord, I thank you for what you've already done in this worship service as we've been reminded of the character of yourself and your presence here. And God, I pray now that you would, um, as we open your word, that you would give us the capacity to be able to hear from you. I pray that you would position our hearts and our minds with a humility that's open to listen to what it is you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Beth and I are in the midst of transition, and part of that for us is just trying to figure out where we're going to live. And we have, a, have, have made a decision to move into a place in Chicago as our housing, but it's going to require some work in order for us to actually occupy it. Uh, with some of the things that we think God has called us to be about. And there's stuff that needs to be done on the inside of the house, and there's stuff that needs to be done on the outside of the house too. And on the outside of the house, we're looking at it, the, the need for siding, and so we've, we've imagined uh, uh, kind of traditional lap siding. And then on the top, kind of a peak, we just thought, wouldn't it look cool if we could actually have some of the cedar 
uh, a lap side or cedar shake side and above, just kind of a contrast to what's down below. And so we've talked to the person who's uh, willing to do it for us, and he says, you know, that's fine. He says, I love it. It really stands out. It's, it's, it just is, it makes a nice, distinctive uh, look on the front of a house. But here's the thing that just really bothers me. It bothers me when we do all of that work and create this beautiful contrast there, and then the people that own the home come by, and they just paint over the whole thing in the same color. It was meant to stand out. And all of the beauty of it isn't noticed. In fact, you can't even see um, the beauty of that distinction. It doesn't even stand out when you just paint over the whole thing and it all looks the same. You walk by it and nobody will even notice it. So, I'm not up for it if you're not willing to let it stand out in some way. Well, we haven't decided that yet. But as I've been thinking about uh, Daniel chapter 3 this morning, I realized that the sense of standing out, there's something beautiful that needs to be declared and that God hopes for in our lives where we actually will stand out. And the imperative is, is don't let it get painted over. And that that's just so common for us, isn't it? In, our, in, the, in the things God has done in our life, that are meant to stand out and be noticed because there's something beautiful about what God has done. We just have this, this sense of don't be too noticeable. Let's just kind of paint it over so no one can really detect a difference between us. And then we come to Daniel chapter 3 and we discover that in the story of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there were three guys that literally stood up and actually stood out in a way that showed the beauty and the character of their devotion to God and of God himself. In fact, I realized as I was looking at Daniel chapter 3 that, you know, that's the way the whole Bible is. Show me a character that's following Jesus in Scripture that doesn't stand out. Their life isn't painted over in any way. Every single character we see in God's word that's following after him, that's following after Jesus, well, their life stands out. In fact, it would be reasonable to conclude that a person who is following Jesus um, will stand out. Their life will be a contrast. It's, I don't even think it's possible to be a follower of Jesus in the full sense of what that means and not stand out. So here's what my, I'm praying for this morning, that by time we're done, that you will have some sense of what it means for you to live a life that's not painted over. What does it mean for your life to stand out in a way that's consistent with how God made you and what he's done in you so that people will stand up and take notice of it? That's my prayer. By the time we leave here, you'll say, I know what it means. I know what it looks like for me to be a person who stands out. So let's look at the text together. And before we read it together, I just want to say a couple of things about it. You probably all know the story of Nebuchadnezzar deciding to erect this statue, this idol really, uh, that, that uh, gives glory to him along the way. This is actually the record for those, those three um, friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the first record we have in Scripture of specifically religious persecution. This persecution because they were a nation and all of those other things. But here, the reason why these three people are persecuted is because they have pledged allegiance to the God of the universe, to the one who is sovereign and in control. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar erects this image. It's 90 feet tall. I mean, imagine that's a nine-story building and nine feet wide, and it's overlaid with gold. This may be uh, because of what Nebuchadnezzar heard in that dream that Daniel shared with him in Daniel chapter 2. Do you remember he described Nebuchadnezzar's reign as the head, and it was a head of gold? Perhaps that's the reason why when he erects this image um, in the plains that it's overlaid with gold. It must have been spectacular in the way it looked. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds the statue, and then he demands public demonstration of adornment, of, of worship to him and who he is and this representation of his reign. And then we see in this story actually a couple things that stand out. In fact, we look at them and say, why, why, does, why does the person who wrote this, why does, why does it said over and over again? There is this list of participants repeated several times and almost seems unwieldy for it to be said over and over again. But there's a reason why. I mean, it's like with all of God's word, no word is wasted. Uh, there's an intention for everything God wants to say to us through his word. And here we see this repetition of the people that are there, and one gets the sense very quickly that there was everybody. Everybody was there. Every, every possible power or uh, role was represented in all of the government they were there. So if there was any sense that these three people were under scrutiny and part of the peer pressure of the mob of everyone, it's made clear here, there was there, everyone was there and everyone was bowing down. And then you see this reference to the musical instruments and it said over and over again and you'll get it as we read it. You get this sense it's not only that everyone was there, it's this was a big deal. This was an event filled with pomp and circumstance. There was a sense of majesty in this moment and this, this, this overpowering sense that there's a dignity in this place, and I better not step out of line. You know, just kind of the sense of, are, are we really not going to do what everyone else is doing in the formality of this place? It would be a little bit like, who wants their cell phone to ring in the middle of a wedding, right? And, and so there is this kind of a sense of not only is the peer pressure that is uh, prevalent there, but the expectations in the ceremony of the event are enormous was one of the question, and it is, why isn't Daniel there? We see Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there, but Daniel wasn't there. And we really don't know the reason for that. We can go back to chapter 2 at the very end of it, and Daniel was described as the person who remained in the royal court. So it seems like his place became a different place than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. And that might be the reason why he wasn't here, because he had other responsibilities, this unique um, place in the royal court that he had. There's no doubt that Daniel would have done the same thing because we go to Daniel chapter 6 and we see Daniel standing out in, in, against the, the decree of King Darius uh, and he prays from that window and he's thrown in the den of lions. So there's continuity here in regards to a willingness to stand out. There's just a difference in regards to the people that God has called into this uh, place at the time. So let's look at it. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn, them, turn to them because we're actually going to read almost all of the story together. It's a wonderful story, and you've got part of it on the front of your Connect. I just, I just want to read essentially the, the whole part of it here. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 
King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon. There's no bitterness here, right? It's not, I mean, you know it's embedded in this text simplicity, whom we are very upset about, by the way, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you on this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Now, there's something about this blazing furnace. Archaeologists haven't been able to find exactly what this looks like, but there are a couple of things 
that are, are, are most likely true about it. One is the furnace was probably there because it was used for the construction of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had, had erected. And so it was actually used for that. The other element of what this furnace might have looked like is the thought that, the, uh, the, the, that these men were thrown into essentially the chimney of it. You know, where all of the heat is coming out and where the soldiers obviously lost their lives as they threw these three men into it. And after they were thrown into it, along the side of it, there were windows, even ability to exit because they come out of it. But that's what the furnace looked like. And so that's what we read here in verse 22. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbounded and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. These three, they stood out. That was the nature of, of their life, the conviction of their resolve. Why do they stand out? I think it's helpful for us to notice this because it will apply to us. For Daniel's three friends, they stood out because they lived in the midst of brokenness, in a world that was just filled with brokenness. And we see the impact of it. They weren't intended to, make, to engage in some big protest or demonstration. There's no sense in this story that they came with signs, placards, and say, we will not bow down. I said, I have no other gods before me. There was, it was none of that. In fact, in fact, so subtle was it in the midst of all the crowd, the king didn't even notice it. Others came along and they pointed it out to the king, what they had noticed. This wasn't because they wanted to engage in some big protest. It's because it's who they were. It just wasn't possible. In, in the brokenness of this world, what you're asking me to do, I just can't do. In fact, it was the brokenness of the world that brought them to this place where they had to stand up, for, stand out for their faith. The astrologers, filled with jealousy, I mean professional jealousy really, they had lost their place to these outsiders, these foreigners, these people that couldn't even speak their language when they first got here. They didn't like our food. I mean, there was all of that stuff that was a part of it. Oh, that's right. 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had actually saved their life. But even that was forgotten in the midst of professional jealousy. Do you see the brokenness of this place? This is a world that is filled with jealousy, and it wreaks havoc with us and the people around us. There's a world that is filled with forgetfulness. What someone did for me, it's what have you done for me lately? In all of the the bitterness or resentment or disregard that comes with it. The world is filled with brokenness. And you have another illustration of it in this king who was filled with this pride, this immense pride in who, him, who he is, that he makes demands of other people. There is no freedom there. Pride brings restrictions and demands and subservience. It's a broken world. But I don't even think it's reading too deeply in the text to wonder what kind of insecurities were there for this king that he had to make demands. He had to construct something like this so he could just feel better about himself. Make sure you tell me that I'm the big man. You know, so you see all of that brokenness and in the midst of a world that is filled with brokenness, people who are following Jesus, they'll stand out. They'll stand out because something more needs to be said. They'll stand out because they look different than that by God's grace. And not only was their world filled with brokenness, friends, it's true for us. We've got a world that is filled with brokenness. A world that is filled with jealousies. And if, and if the world is filled with jealousies, a person who is trying to live with faith and trust in God Guess what? In the context of jealousy, people who are trying to follow Jesus, you will stand out. In a culture of arrogance, arrogance all around us. And Jesus, who being in very nature God, thought it not robbery to make himself nothing. And he humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross, that's our Lord. Characterized by humility and service to others in a culture where arrogance and I'm a big deal seems to be in so many sentences, we will stand out. In a culture of indulgence, those of us that say, I have everything I need in Jesus. Oh, we'll stand out. Those who crave gratification from other things uh, will notice those who say, I don't need it. Not necessary for me in my life. In a culture of racism, we'll remember the God who looks at every person and sees the image of God in them and recognizes their value and their preciousness regardless of where they came from. If we, if we live by that, we will stand out. In a world where people are marginalized because they don't believe the same thing we do, think the same thing we do, do the same stuff we do, act like we think that they ought to look like, in a world filled with marginalization of various peoples, we will stand out. In fact, in the third and fourth century, this was the mark of the Christian believers. 
all of the people that were persecuting them because they weren't following the, the leaders of, 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 uh, in Rome, uh, they, they fell sick with plague, horrendous plague, and, and were marginalized. No one would go near them because they were dying of plague. And the only ones that would go into the houses of those people who didn't have any interest in faith in Jesus Christ were those who had faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see? We'll stand out. In a world filled with brokenness, we will stand out. We will stand out because Jesus stood out. He was engaged in people's lives in a way that is so antithetical to so many of the values that are true in our culture today. Daniel's friends stood out because the world was filled with brokenness and they decided to look just like Jesus. We will stand out in a world filled with brokenness because we've decided to look, to act, to speak just like Jesus. There's another element of this, and that is that Daniel's friends stand out because only God is king. I mean, we heard this the first week when we looked at chapter 1, didn't we? The main theme of the book of Daniel is that God is the sovereign God. He is the one who is king, and he is declared to be king. In fact, we read this in verse 18 of chapter 3, which we just looked at. He, they say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There is one God, and he is our Lord. Three men in the story were intent on devotion to God. Three heads did not touch the earth. Three individuals remained standing in the midst of it. Not because they wanted to publicly demonstrate, but because they needed to personally declare there is but one. My heart, my life, my will will always belong to God. They knew his place, and they stood out because of this unique conviction. There is one who is sovereign. And this is such a contrast with the culture around him. In fact, if the people that were there that day actually came in their cars and they had bumper stickers for their cars, you would have seen the parking lot littered with coexist bumper stickers. That's what the culture was. The culture was filled with people who said, hey, there are so many gods out there and it really doesn't make any difference. If the king wants us to bow to his today, no big deal. The problem was that it was a big deal for Daniel's friends because in a culture that is characterized by, hey, it doesn't matter what you believe, they're all wonderful and good, there is a God who said to them, I am the Lord your God and you will have no other gods before me. We get to the New Testament and Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If I believe that, I will stand out in a culture that doesn't even understand why that's necessary. In fact, we go later on in the book of Colossians, we understand the character of Christ as Paul described it. Jesus is described as the Son, of the, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him 
All things hold together. There is but one God, and he is sovereign. He is, in fact, the one who holds all things together. This isn't because, Jesus doesn't insist on this because it makes him feel good. He insists on this because we need it. It, it must be true. There is, one, there is one who holds all things together, and we must know, the world must know who that is. Now, I want to say something about uh, 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 idols right here because that's what's happening here in the text, something seemed to happen with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, in chapter 2, he says, your God is the Lord of lords, King of kings. And somewhere between chapter 2 and chapter 3, something happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life. What happens is this. He begins to build something that captures his passion and changes his heart. And he builds this thing. And in chapter 2, he's saying, your God is the Lord of lords. In chapter 3, he says, I am a really big deal. and I want you to worship me. And before we categorize all of those people in our community with the coexist bumper stickers on their car, we need to realize this. It's, it's, not, it's not what other people are saying that I need to be concerned about. It's what's happening inside of my heart. It's what's going on inside of me. What has captured my passion? What has focused my energy? And is it about him being glorified? Or am I doing the same thing Nebuchadnezzar has done? I've started to construct idols. Oh, they were just desires or longings at first, but they capture me and I discover that I must have them. It happens over time. Let me just tell you a little bit about my life. When I was a kid, I, I was the smallest kid in my class. And it wasn't just that I had a late birthday. It was that I was just a tiny kid in stature. When I, was, when I, was, when I got my driver's permit, I was five foot two. Uh, when I, I won speech events because the judge said, look at that cute little kid. <laughs> I am not kidding you. Uh, when I went away to college... Um, I came back after the first year, and my friend says, whoa, I was just slow. I've always been slow. <laughs> and uh, and do, you, do you know what that does to your, your thinking? And, and to, to just understand even more of it, my dad, his name was Joseph Jerome. His dad's name was Joe. And so Mike was, my dad, it was called Joe Jr., and then he was Little Joe because physically his stature, he never really, he never got very big at all. He was Little Joe. He hated, he hated that. But, you know, all of us, even me as a kid, wanting to see big, physically big people, my dad just wasn't enough. It took a long time before I realized the stature on the inside makes a whole lot more difference than the stature on the outside. But my dad, did, I don't even think my dad thought he was enough. So when you've got a dad who's not sure of what he is and a kid who just is this little, little uh, kid as well too. Do you know what that does? Some of you know what that does, doesn't it? Don't you? You just start to believe this thing. I just don't have what it takes. And it moves from a longing and a craving to 
I got to have it. And I've got to find people around me that will tell me, you have what it takes. In fact, that message from those voices, that so easily became an idol in my life. I craved it. I constructed my life around it. The things I did were focusing on getting it. And then there is this God who is sovereign over all, the only voice that really matters, and he wants to scream into my ear, Mark, you are exactly the way I made you to be, and I couldn't hear it because I had this idol over here and this craving from other people. Do you see how it happens? It just starts happening. It happens small, and it just gets built up, and it captures our lives in ways that we don't expect it to. And, and eventually, God is, God is just gone because we're looking elsewhere for those things. These personal insecurities that we have demand to be satisfied. And the idol of achievement is about more than just simply getting awards. It's this ache in my heart to be worth something. Idols are formed alongside the deepest longings in our heart. If your longing is this, will I ever be happy, there are quick ways to get there. All of which will disappoint in the end, but they feel good in the moment. It's the accumulation of possessions that have the promise of making one happy or pleasures that provide happiness, though not very long, but long enough to become idols in our minds, in our hearts, in our will. Will I ever be treated fairly? Can birth idols of revenge and of anger. Oh, it feels so good to be angry. Will people like me? And that quest for perfection becomes an idol. Perhaps you've seen it, a person who goes from one relation to the next, to the next, to the next. Sometimes that's just because that's the way life works. Sometimes it's because there's this deep, deep desire to feel affection from wherever it can be found. And the God of the universe says, that's mine. I want you to hear from me. I want you to live it out because I am the one who holds all things together. And I will hold your heart together. I will hold your life together. I'm the one. And so Daniel's friends stand on this plane. They stand on this plane because they say this. I know he is the one who holds all things together. There is no other one who can take the name Sovereign who can be the focus of my deepest passions and commitments and resolves other than Jesus Christ, the one who holds all things together. And when we believe that, we'll stand out. We'll stand out. Then there's one other aspect of this, what this meant for Daniel's friends, is that Daniel's friends stand out because, because it was worship. It was actually worship. You know, there are a lot of things that we can say when we actually have the opportunity to be able to, with our life and with the dangers associated with it, with the risk associated with it, we actually get to worship in a way we never were before. The astrologers, they wanted their position. 
the king, he wanted more prestige. These three, they wanted nothing but to worship. And the weight of this worship was found in the significance of the consequences. They say to King Nebuchadnezzar, not, we've negotiated with God and we're sure of it, we're going to be safe. So you just go ahead and throw us in. There was no assurance of safety. In fact, they followed up by saying, and we don't know what he will do, but he is the sovereign Lord and we will do it because we know who he is and what it means for us to give our lives to him. This is, this is riddled all the way through God's word. This is what it means for us to follow Jesus. Romans 12, I beg of you therefore, brothers and sisters, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable worship. And this isn't, this isn't incongruent. What happens here isn't incongruent with what happens with God's people all over the world. In fact, we can just go back last year, April, 2015, April, 119 university students at a university in a city in Kenya. Somali, Somali uh, terrorists came in, militants came in, and they asked this question, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And they were immediately shot. 119 Christians, young students, university students, died for their faith in Kenya last April. Perhaps, perhaps you've seen the pictures of those 21 young men who were marched along the sea. And because of their faith in Christ, that didn't come out in all of the news, because of their faith in Christ, they were beheaded for their faith. You see, this isn't always the story that happens. This miraculous rescue, and they said, and it doesn't need to. Because what it is, regardless of what God does, what it is, is worship. And it will be worship. And we are only devoted to God. And so God says to us, to me, I'm the only one worthy of worship. And he invites us into that. You know, just personally speaking, I will say this. I think for me... I find myself considering the inconvenience of standing up, of saying something, of acting a particular way, of, of stepping out and having a voice in something. The inconvenience of that, I feel like, is worship. And the character of our faith in Jesus Christ is this. God, you've got my whole life. You do what you want to do because you're sovereign. And my calling is to be one of those who stands out because that's what I declare. You know, I have a young friend in my life, and uh, this person describes himself as having faith. And the reality of it is, is I just don't know yet. And I ask myself, why is it, Mark, that you're so unsure whether that faith is actually legitimate or not? And I was just really wrestling with it. I mean, it says all the right things, and, and it says he has faith. Why, do I, why, why am I not convinced of it? I'm, I've not said anything to him about it. But you know the reason why I, I, I'm not convinced of it yet? is because I've never seen it make a difference in something like this. I've never seen him make a choice where he stands out and there's jeopardy attached to it because of his devotion to Jesus Christ. And this is what God invites us to. I'll tell you a story about a mentor of mine and then invite you to figure out what it means for you. Some of you know Stuart Briscoe. He was pastor to Beth and myself and Beth worked on his pastoral staff for a period of time and Stuart was telling us a story of when he was a young man and he actually uh, was going to become a, uh, join the military 
And uh, his family was proud of him and got together for a big party and send off for Stuart when he was going to the barracks for training. And his uncle came up to him at the end of the party and he said, Stuart, there's one bit of advice for you I have, and it is this. When you get into those barracks that first day, I want you to nail your colors to the mast. He said, nail my colors to the mast. It's actually an expression in, in uh, naval circles of an admiral going into battle and telling someone to climb the mast and nail the flag to the mast. The colors were the flag. Nail the flag to the mast. And he was essentially telling everybody on that ship, there will be no white flag raised. We're walking in and we're all in. There will be no retreat. There will be no surrender. Nail the colors to the mast. And Stuart wondered what that meant and his uncle told him some things. And so Stuart walked into the barracks that first evening and set his baggage, his, his, his packet, his bed, and everybody got into bed and he got into bed. And they, Okay, here goes. And he pulled himself out of bed, got down on his knees, and began to pray. And he could hear there was all this cluttered commotion that was going on. These guys, you know, big, big manly men, um, just kind of getting ready, getting to know each other. And all of a sudden, it just got deathly quiet in the room. And Stuart said, I don't even know that I prayed. I think I just counted to ten. And I got back in my bed, and I knew the colors have been nailed to the mast. Now, I don't know what it means for you, but I know you need to know. And so here's my prayer for you, an invitation to you as the worship team comes up to conclude things today. Ask God, God, what will it look like for me this week to nail my colors to the mast? And I just have to say to you, do it soon because if you don't do it soon, you won't do it at all, right? Is that right? If I don't figure out what it is and do it, I will not do it. Let me pray for you. Lord, this room is filled with people who have this sense that you are the one who holds all things together and this desire to live a life of worship. But Lord, we need to know what it means for us to live that out in a way that's consistent with what you have called your people to in the past. Lord, I pray that you would show us, even now, what it looks like for us to be those who nail our colors to the mast. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.